0: Hello, and welcome to another Meta Media Group production of On Purpose Magazine, featuring interesting, inspiring, educational, and entertaining stories, discussions, and interviews of purpose with purpose on purpose. Hello, everybody. This is J.W. Nigerian with On Purpose Magazine, and today we're here with Jim Birkenstadt, um, Birkenstadt, that's B E R K E N S T A D T. And uh he's the author of The Beatle Who Vanished, um, with a foreword by former Beatle Chaz Newby, and this is about uh drummer Jimmy Nickel, who vanished after playing with the Beatles in
1: nineteen sixty four. Hey, so great to have you uh with me, Jim. Hey, great to be on. I, I appreciate being on your show, JW. Thank you. Hey, no problem. Um
0: First of all, I want to let everybody know who Jim is. Um, you're the rock and roll detective, uh, the Sherlock Holmes. Birkenstadt uncovers the lost history and mysteries hidden within decades of popular music. An international authority on the Beatles. He has co-authored uh, three other books, Black Market Beatles, The Beatles Digest, Nevermind Nirvana, and edited John, Paul, and Me before the Beatles. Birkenstadt has also consulted... To the Beatles and the estate of George Harrison on numerous products. So, uh, rock and roll detective, that's, uh, that's, that's quite a, quite a feat.
1: Well, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a great ride. I started out as an attorney, but I've slowly, um, transformed myself into a, uh, really a, a rock and roll historian, which is something I think I just grew up to be. Uh, and I've been very fortunate to work on projects uh, for the Beatles, such as their Cirque du Soleil show in Las Vegas, um, their uh, Beatles Love. Helps, yes, that's a great show. Yeah, the Love show, Beatles Help DVD that just came out on Blu-ray. I've worked on. Uh, interestingly, some of the projects I've worked on for the Beatles Company, Apple, um, have not yet seen the light of day. But you know, they work years in advance on things. Whereas. A lot of the projects I, I did with George Harrison and now with Olivia Harrison have uh, come out and been released. The big box set, the Dark Horse Years, the Traveling Wilburys box set. Um, also, most recently, I, I was the historical consultant on Martin Scorsese's uh, HBO Emmy Award-winning film George Harrison: Living in the Material World. Wow! How fun is that? Uh, it was beyond fun. It was like the greatest honor uh, to work on on a project like that, especially uh, one about George Harrison's life. You know, really setting the record straight, so that you know generations can always look to that movie as an accurate uh, depiction of his life. And so, to be to be the historical consultant on something so important uh, and important to me was was a great honor. Well, a couple of things I'd like to ask you just was first off because uh, we just met. And one of the
0: things I, uh, we got into a conversation right away and you, you were just really fun to, to talk with. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I envisioned you because after looking at your book, which is shock full, I mean, it's just stocked full of pictures and facts and your end notes is, you know, just it goes on for three <laughs> pages. Um, I mean, I kind of thought of you in my head as one of those, um, guys that would be very quiet uh you probably lock yourself in a room for months at a time um and 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 I'd have to like be sucking questions you know answers oh, like out a, of like
1: a a beetle geek or something a
0: beetle geek yeah and and yeah. and you actually have a personality so what what happened there
1: <laughs> what happened well i think what happened was i went to northwestern university uh in evanston illinois and that's where all those 700 end notes came from they were very strict about Making sure that you accurately reported your sources in any paper you wrote, and then of course becoming an attorney and having to write um, motions (laughs) and and, you know and all these judgments, summary judgments and things. You, You had to really document what you were saying, and and so I've read so many books on rock and roll music over the years, and so much of it is hearsay or things cut and pasted from People magazine into a book, and, and suddenly it, it it's taken as gospel when, in fact, certain things didn't happen. And so I felt, especially when you are now creating what has become now in this book, a new chapter in Beatles history, one in which has never been reported on before, I have to be especially accurate uh, because no one knows anything about this person and just believes right. he... Came and went in thirteen days and was never heard from again. And yet he had a really fascinating career. So
0: I wanted to. And, I, and I want to get into that in a second, but I kind of want to go back with you a little bit. Um, how did a former lawyer? Uh, were you just a rock and roll lover,
1: you know, as a kid? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, from the first moment I saw them on the Ed Sullivan Show, the Beatles, yeah, in 1964, I was hooked. And then I think a week later, my mom, you know, heard me still talking about that show and so she went out and bought me my first album i think i was eight years old and the how thing old are you I, now uh i am 57 okay yeah, that makes sense right yeah so i i was fascinated and i remember reading the liner notes and i remember always uh, as the years went on as more and more credits were put onto record albums uh, that i was fascinated by who played drums on that session and who was the producer the engineer and uh, so it just became a, a complete fascination with classic rock, and then from that, it was well, how were these people influenced? And so, then I I went back and learned the music of the 50s that that really influenced all the people from the 60s. Uh, so your Little Richard and Buddy Holly and Elvis Presley right. and all those guys, and and also the a lot of the old blues players were. Um, you know, we're very influential to uh, bands that Eric Clapton was in and things like that. So, was oh fantastic. yeah, absolutely. Rolling Stones, they were big blues fans. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. So it was, uh, you know, it was just a a passion, and uh, it just grew. Fr- it grew out of that Ed Sullivan show, and then it, you know, Beatles and everyone else.
0: Yeah, you know, I think everybody kind of knows where they kind of remembers where they were when that happened and stuff. I remember I was actually living in England at the time. My father was stationed at Norton Air Force Base. Oh, so when um, the Beatles got on a plane to go to America, uh, the BBC was playing Beatles songs between every show. Uh, it was just—I mean—they were so proud of the Beatles going over to America to play. It was such a huge event, even there. And
1: yeah, well, it meant sort of that if you could if you could break America, which was. Uh, uh, had really not been done by British musical groups ever, but if you mm-hmm. could break America, then you've you've just about conquered the whole world. Oh right, and so that was you know that was part of Brian Epstein's goal as the Beatles manager was we got to get over there and break America, and Ed Sullivan was the best possible to do because pretty much everybody in America tuned into that show on Sunday nights. Well, even uh, at the Officers' Club, uh, you know the Americans there would.
0: We definitely would tune in. Tune in, yeah. So let's go ahead and get on to the Beatles now. Um, We're going to be speaking about Jimmy Nichol, which was another Beatle, and uh, you had a forward uh, in your book by former Beatle Chaz Newby, and we all know the other Beatle. Oh, now his name escapes me. Um, Stuart Sutcliffe? Yeah,
1: yeah. Or Pete Best, the other drummer. Or Pete Best, right. Okay, so <laughs> this kind of begs the question how many Beatles were there? <laughs> there were a lot of them. <laughs> well, it depends on, you know, uh, there's a lot of battles online on the internet about, oh, he wasn't a Beatle, oh, he was a Beatle. And, and you know, was, was Brian Epstein a Beatle because he was their manager? Was George Martin a Beatle because he played on some of their tracks and he produced their songs and helped shape them? So it really depends. You know, was Billy Preston a Beatle because he played on, on Let It Be and Abbey Road? Uh, right. I'm not going to answer those questions, but I'll just say that there are, are great debates online. So it's hard to say how many Beatles there were unless you can create a definition. I mean, the world just really thinks of John, Paul, George, and Ringo as the Beatles, and, and the Beatles, the four of them think that way as well. Right. Um but there were people who got to be Beatles for a while, and, and the Beatles called themselves the Beatles while Jimmy Nickel was on tour with them. They promoted the shows as the Beatles. All of the posters had the Beatles on it, the tickets, um, the merchandise. Um, the newspaper reports said the Beatles are coming to Hong Kong, and there's Jimmy Nickel on stage. So And he, did, he signed autographs with them with them, which there are examples in the book. Right. So when I went to uh, research the book in Melbourne, I was able to look at the promoter's archives from the Beatles' tour down under, which included Jimmy Nickel. And there were letters in there from Brian Epstein to this promoter saying, in all circumstances, Jimmy Nickel is to be treated as a Beatle. Jimmy Nickel must ride in the same parade car. He must right. have the same hotel. He must have you know hotel room accommodations. He's to be on stage. He's to be anywhere where any of the other Beatles are. He's to get the same services, security, etc. And and so, unlike Pete
0: Best, who had started the group and then and then left because uh, Ring they wanted Ringo in. Mm-hmm. Ringo, I understand, and you can tell. I'm sure you know. Uh, Ringo got sick and and had to go off tour
1: and. Uh, and, and that's why, you mean that's why, when, was put that's why Jimmy Nichol came in? That's why Jimmy came in. What's shocking is that it was the day before the Beatles' first ever world tour. So his uh, going into the hospital, when Ringo went into the hospital, it threw everything up in the air. And back then, the contracts that were written didn't allow uh, an out clause for someone who got ill. The show right. must go on. I mean, the tickets are sold. You better be here or you better pay back the promoters. So it would have been there would have been lawsuits, there would have been terrible PR for the Beatles all over the world had this tour not happened. And so Epstein realized that he talked to the the other three Beatles about it and George Harrison said, "Well, if Ringos not going, then we're not the Beatles and I'm not going." <laughs> and so first he had to deal with the uh, that inner drama and turmoil, and they had to ultimately convince George why, for business reasons, they had to do this and the show had to go on. And then once that happened, you know, hours had slipped by, and now they still didn't have a drummer. So they had to, uh, they went down, they, they sent people down to the Soho clubs in London in search of a drummer. And Jimmy Nichol, as readers will find out, was not the first person chosen. He, in fact, was the third person asked to come and, and play. Mm-hmm. But it was a big, um, big dramatic ordeal, and they were very lucky that they found Jimmy because uh, it turns out Jimmy Nichol already knew all of Ringo Starr's parts, and, right. and those were not necessarily easy, easy parts. So imagine if a different drummer had been chosen uh, and didn't know those parts, and the very next day they were flying off to the Netherlands to play their first show. Let's talk about Ringo a little bit because, Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, Ringo just saw
0: what had happened to Pete Best when he came in. Right. Um, He knew that uh, Jimmy Nicol was coming in, and... um, um, there was, you know, there was always infighting about who, good looking guys in the band. It was, I think there was a fight with, uh, you know, Pete Best, who was better looking Ringo or him. But also Ringo had not, uh, was he, or had already been sold to the public? Had he already have a, had a big following like he did later yeah. on? Yeah,
1: he, he, Ringo, uh, was really, um, established by this point. He had been okay. with the Beatles for two years and he had a, he had a big fan following and he had, Developed a sort of a new fan following in America, uh, which became very strong. He, by '64, he was starting to become the most popular Beatle, believe it or not. Yeah, no, I, I think he was in our household. Yeah, but the interesting thing was that um, he did feel somewhat insecure once he was in that hospital bed and he's watching on tv as the beatles head off on their first world tour and he's not with them and you know i think that as you pointed out you know pete best had been replaced by ringo only two years earlier now ringo was being temporarily replaced two years after peter best by jimmy nickel and ringo knew of jimmy nickel he knew he was a well-known london drummer he was currently playing in the hottest band in england at the time the hottest live band uh in the in really in london at the time georgie fame and the blue flames so i think he was a little insecure and, and a little worried at least mm-hmm. uh, initially sitting in that ho- uh, hospital bed So let's uh, talk about um, what's really wild about this book, and
0: that is, you know, I mean, and you underline it, The Beatle Who Vanished. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jimmy Nichol, when he went at 64, when he went on the world tour, they played Australia, and I think that was the last show he played with them was in Australia, was that correct?
1: That's correct, yeah. It was actually Adelaide. They played uh, a couple of shows this last night, and then the next day they moved on to Melbourne, where Ringo also flew in at the same time, And uh, at one point, you actually had a press conference with five Beatles at the table. Uh, Jimmy Nickel, Ringo Starr, and John, Paul, and George were all at this press conference. And then later, they walked out onto a a big balcony at the hotel, which was surrounded by about, oh, 300,000 fans. (laughs) And... Uh, and they're kind of almost arm in arm. Were Ringo and Jimmy Nichol? They were. You could see they were kind of kidding and joking around. Yeah, you got Melbourne. a picture of that in the book. Yes, that's right. All five together in the book, which is a a rarity. Um, and it was funny because when I was researching in Melbourne, uh, the archives there, I uh, I asked the woman. I said, you know, you look to be about the right age where you might have been in that crowd of three hundred thousand. And she said, yeah, I was. And I said, well, tell me the story. What was it like? And she said, well, I called, I pretended to be my mom and called into Catholic school and told them that, you know, Sally was sick that day and wouldn't be in. And she said, the only problem is in that whole crowd of 300,000, there was one blonde and it was me and everyone else was brunette. And when the camera panned down from the Beatles down into the crowd, they saw me sticking out like a sore thumb, and they they zoomed it in right up. on me. and <laughs> said The nuns all watched it on the news and said, this girl lied to us. So <laughs> she went back to school the next day and was called up in front of the whole school and was humiliated and punished, and oh, my God. And so after she told me this amazing story, I said, can I put it in the book? And she said, sure, but you can't use my real name. And I said, why can't I use your name? And she said, because I'm still scared of the nuns. And I said, but they're dead. (laughs) And she said, doesn't matter. doesn't (laughs) matter. Don't put my name in the book. So it's kind of funny, but she was there as well, so it was kind of interesting to get a firsthand. The bigger story here is that the nuns were watching the Beatles on TV. What's that? The bigger story is that the nuns were watching the Beatles on TV. Well, I don't think they were watching necessarily the live (laughs) feed. I think they caught the The news you know, which just had a clip of it, and of course, the clip was right where they panned from the Beatles down to the one blonde girl in the audience right uh, but yeah, it still it was kind of interesting that they took an interest in not liking the beatles they they thought they were crass commercial <laughs> characters, bad for the kids, bad for the kids, that terrible well, now, this week, I guess it's Miley Cyrus, which is bad for, the Yes. Kids. And you know, it's interesting, uh, there's sort of a, a bit of a parallel, and that is, you know, this book is not just a story about a guy who got to be a Beatle, but it really is also a story of how fame can change people's behavior. And, uh you know, Miley Cyrus may be an example of that, and also Justin Bieber driving around in his neighborhood in a sports car at 100 miles an hour, terrorizing right. all the families. And, you know... Jimmy Nichol took a different form, but he spent the rest of his life uh, trying to get back to that highest level of adulation. Um, And so it's an interesting study of how people decide to deal with that 15 minutes of fame that they're given and and how it changes their behavior and, and what they do or what they sacrifice in order to try and stay up at that highest level. It's funny that the story isn't talked about more often
0: uh, because it happens quite a lot. Uh, yes. Um, for example, Peter Frampton's live album. Mm-hmm. You know, he could never outdo that album right. ever again. And he
1: spent his life trying, of course. Yes. That's true. I mean, there's another good example. Although I think his life of trying was much more constructive uh, yes, I mean, yeah, he still he still has a good gr- a good name and still yeah. plays around, and he's not run off the rails or in. Yeah. in Jimmy Nichols' case, uh, which relates to the uh, title, the Beatle who vanished, um, when he, within a year after the Beatles tour, he had burned through two bands, all of his money, he was bankrupt, he was unemployed, his wife had divorced him. He was estranged from his wife and his son and he walked out the door and didn't tell anybody where he was going and he vanished. And, and I talked to all these musicians who had known him all through the years from the very start and they said, to this day, we don't know where he went. So no. I had a dead end to, to work with there and eventually I found that he had just taken a flight to Sweden. And he ended up in, in Sweden and uh, and was hired by a band called the Spotnicks, who were an instrumental rock band somewhat similar to our um, ventures in America. Right. And so the next thing you know, he's touring the world for two years with them. And so I spent a lot of time interviewing the various members of the Spotnicks, and they talked about all the interesting things they did with Jimmy and the albums they recorded and how helpful he was to their musical sound and such. And and then one day he vanished from them, and they, and none of them had any idea where he went. So I was always faced with dead ends, which is why it took about six years to research this book. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Let me back up one second. Did sure.
0: ni- Jimmy
1: Nickel ever do a recording on
0: any of the songs? With the Beatles?
1: Yes. Um, there are bootleg recordings of Jimmy Nickel... Playing with the Beatles. That are these you know, are live. Then like, these are live. These are live shows that were Audience playing? recordings. Yeah. Right. He didn't. Uh, he did not record with them in the studio on the day he went for his uh, tryout with the Beatles. Hmm. There is a sixty-second newsreel clip of him just j- drumming and the other Beatles standing around him, which is just purely for publicity purposes. Right. But they uh, they ran through the songs. So I I interviewed an eyewitness who was in the session who said nothing was recorded and uh, they just ran through the concert set list live in the studio. Jimmy knew all the parts and John Lennon's jaw was on the floor. And he said, that's it, you're in. <laughs> and he was amazed. You know, How lucky were they on such short notice to find someone that knew Ringo's parts? Oh, yeah. And, you know, could play the... Could play the part and do the thing. And yeah. Had been and in he, front of a... He had the haircut. And, you know, they didn't even have time to uh, fit him for stage suits. So they had to actually uh, let out Ringo's suits. And he had to wear... They tailored Ringo's suits so that he could um, wear them. I mean, that's how oh, short that's time they were. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um,
0: what made you decide on doing a book on Jimmy Nichol? Was there not a book before, or was was it just too many
1: gaps? Well, there was no history. book before. It was I was always intrigued uh, that he only ever merited one sentence in a Beatle history book and no mention at all in any British music history books. Mm-hmm. So I thought, hmm, that's strange it was always just jimmy nickel took over for ringo star for two weeks in 1964 when ringo got ill and helped the beatles on their first world tour right so i guess to me it was a as a uh, as the rock and roll detective i took it as a bit of a challenge to see if i could find enough information really just to write an article about his career i didn't think there was any book there but i got lucky early on finding out things about a general chronology or outline of his career, as I started to hear rumors about different bands that he had played in and then finding members of those bands who then would talk to me about their, their lives with Jimmy Nickel. And I found that almost universally his friends loved him very much and found him to be very generous and highly talented, and they all, all, all seemed to be rooting for him to succeed. So after a while, I connected to various band members from his first group, Colin Hicks and his Cabin Boys, to Vince Eager and the Quiet Three, and then his own bands after the Beatles called the Shub Dubs, and then the Shot and And it just led to me compiling, uh, you know... an outline uh, or a chronology of his career and of his amazing discography that most people, most of those recordings, people have never even uh, heard or seen. Right. And then I found he was so enigmatic because uh, he always seemed to erase his trail uh, when he moved on rather than preserve it. So I guess the best way to describe these years of research was like, it was like a treasure hunt to find a thousand or thousands of pieces, to a giant puzzle. And then after finding all the pieces, uh, you have to use the interviews, the photos, the articles, the videos, the memorabilia, like posters, etc., to fit it all together to create a portrait of Jimmy Nichol that, that readers will now see in this book. But I, I look at it as sort of a new chapter in Beatles history, as well as an interesting portrait of of how fame changes people and how they deal with their 15 minutes of fame. Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's funny how the Beatles have just
0: kept on and kept on and kept on. Uh, recently, Ken Scott, the engineer, um, mm-hmm. Abbey Road, the engineer, just came out with his book, Abbey, uh, Abbey Road to Ziggy Stardust. Right. And, you know, with all his inside stories. It, I, you know, it's just amazing. Uh, I think
1: this thing can go on and on and on. I think it will. And, you know, the Beatles are sort of like the Walt Disney of the music world uh, in that every now and then they kind of polish something off that's been in the vaults and bring it back out again, maybe with some new material. Um, and then every now and then they also come out with something that's totally brand new. So, And things like rock band have helped them push their legacy down to new generations. And certainly, the baby boomer generation has uh, turned their children on to the music of the Beatles. Yeah, and I'm actually surprised. I
0: remember when we, we what we did with our parents' music. Like, we don't want to listen to that crap. Uh, well, but, you know, you listen. You talk to yeah. kids now, and they're, wow, this. You know, I'm really into the Beatles. I'm really into Led Zeppelin.
1: I'm really, mm-hmm. and it's like,
0: really? Wow, that's great.
1: Well, you know, I think I've often thought about that, and I wonder if it's because. My parents listened to big band type music, right? And yeah, rock and roll was so different from big band. And today we still have rock and roll; that they're new rock bands for young people to like. So it isn't that big of a leap for them to say, "Well, I should check out this old rock band." You know, when well, you know, if, you, if you go to Austin, rolls. the music scene in
0: Austin, mm-hmm. you um, the Alabama Shakes, for instance. I mean, they're getting back to the roots of blues, which started yeah. the whole thing. Right, that's rhythm right. and blues and and, and uh, blues and soul. It's uh, they're really getting back to that really authentic music, and, I, and I'm really happy right. that that's happening because oh, you know right. I, I there's a lot of pop I like. I'm not mm-hmm. going to say I don't, but but boy, there's nothing more better to listen to for me than authentic uh, older music.
1: Oh, I agree. You know, it's it's so organic, and everybody yeah. is playing their parts, and it's the combination of all those parts and the singing that really makes it for me. Yeah, no auto-tune here. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, and I was going to make the point, too, that when you have newer bands like uh, Dave Grohl's Foo Fighters and, and all right. the people, people who knew him from Nirvana, and you see him work on a, a record with Paul McCartney, then people who don't know who Paul is go, oh, he's with some band called The Beatles. I ought to check that out. So. <laughs> It's kind of interesting how people come to find out about the Beatles in many different ways. No, absolutely. It's 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 pretty, and and
0: they had such a great discography. I mean, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people know some of their stuff, but they they have such a vast. They were around for a long time, making a lot of different types of music. Right, um, they kept it's
1: changing. Amazing. They didn't, you know. Nowadays, if someone has a hit song uh the the machinery of the the corporate music world just has them repeat the formula until they fade away and disappear but right. the beatles came in with you know they were constantly changing musical styles they were changing uh they as they matured their lyrics matured uh they wanted to bring new instrumentation into their songs as they got uh, got along further in their career so I think it's the fact that every album changes and grows uh, that is why I think so many people uh come to appreciate them. Let me jump back to Jimmy Nichol
0: for a minute because, sure. because you talked about him in so many different bands and and him always trying to get that fame again get uh, did he blow himself up doing that or um, moving from band to band um Or did the guys get tired of him after a while? It sounds like you said they liked him. So was it him blowing himself up? There were drugs involved at one
1: time? uh, No, really, it was, you know, there were two factors going on. One, what was happening with each of those bands, and I can give you some examples. And two, what was in Jimmy's mindset. And I think Jimmy's mindset was I just want to steadily climb the ladder and be able to be in a position to have a family Uh, to support, and to support them as a drummer. So that I can be a professional musician, I don't have to work in a factory. So, when he was with Colin Hicks and the Cabin Boys, they started out, they didn't get too many gigs, but suddenly they, they did, they got the opportunity to perform a couple of songs in a movie. And this movie then became quite popular across Europe. And uh, suddenly everybody in Italy was fascinated with them, Playing in this movie colin hicks and the cabin boys so uh what happened was promoters over there found these guys in england and brought them over and they toured italy and they recorded in italy so jimmy got some great experiences outside his country touring being you know seeing the adulation getting to understand how it works to record in a studio which is a different a whole different prospect than playing live where you can be sloppy and nobody will notice or something but in the studio right. you have to be right on and so he he absorbed all this but then uh, the tour came to an end and it didn't look like there was much future for that band so he and a few of the other guys came back to uh, London and what happened was at that time there was a gentleman named Larry Parnes who was a precursor to Brian Epstein and he was a big. Uh, he had a big uh, group of different bands that he marketed and promoted, and he put them in all these package tours and different combinations. So at first, he put him in a band with Tony Sheridan, who ironically right. ended up uh, playing and recording with the Beatles uh, a year or so later in Hamburg. All right. And from there, this guy Larry Parnes just plucked Jimmy like he was a chess piece and moved him over to a band called Vince Eager and the Quiet Three. And they they had a great time for about a year or so touring, and in that case, uh, Larry Parnes had a falling out with Vince Eager, which caused Vince Eager to be blacklisted by Larry, and that meant the band wasn't going to play anymore, so Jimmy had to move on. So uh, it wasn't like anything blew up. It was just sort of the everyday circumstances of bands um, breaking up, coming together, caused him to go from one to another. But what's interesting is, in each case, he always moved up a step in the world Till finally he was actually in a, a big band, which big bands were still popular in the uh, early to mid-60s in England, although right. they had faded in the U.S. And the trumpet player in the band was a, became buddies with Jimmy. His name was Johnny Harris. And Johnny moved into the recording industry. Uh, he got a job at Pi Records as an arranger. And he brought Jimmy over at some point because uh, a producer came along who wanted to produce uh, copies or covers of the biggest hits of the day. So Jimmy then got to join the very rare club of studio musicians. and so he Nice, got, yeah. He, he got to make money that... You know, no one else in England was making it at that time, and those that that whole experience led him to actually play a session where Brian Epstein was present, and I was able to actually find BBC video footage of Jimmy and Brian Epstein in the same room working in the studio. So um, it led me to understand, you know, how a lot of these things, how the stars aligned and how people knew people. Uh, and how Jimmy was one of the people finally asked to uh, tour with the Beatles. But it was those Mm -hmm. 13 days with the Beatles that I think were both a blessing and a curse because on the one hand, it made him world famous and he came back to lots of adulation and the media referred to him as a fifth Beatle. But on the other hand, I think it changed him and made him feel that he had to... Um continue to try to reach back up to the highest level, and I think that a lot of the a lot of this ego of trying to be number one again blinded him to the fact that you know he had a certain skill set as a drummer, but he wasn 't a singer he wasn 't a songwriter he wasn 't the guy up front at the front of the band that you know the girls right. would swoon for. I don't think he realized that it would be very difficult to reach that same, you know, mountain of fame that the Beatles were at. And and yet, yeah, at that time, I mean, the Beatles, who knew the drummer of any other band? That's right. I, I can't even knew the name a drummer Clark. of
0: another band except you know
1: later on maybe. In fact, some people knew of the Dave Clark Five, but they didn't know that Dave Clark was the drummer.
0: <laughs> you know,
1: he I didn't a, know that. Yeah, that's so new to me. that's kind of an interesting thing uh, that you point out, is that Ringo was like the drummer that everyone knew by name.
0: Yeah, so to aspire to that, would be, it's, that's, that's just tough. It's like we're trying to win the lottery, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's yeah. Um, so you, one of the things you brought up was uh, blacklisting, and, and you mentioned yeah. blacklisting. Uh, he never got blacklisted. The group he was in, somebody was blacklisted in that, so it kind of slowed him down.
1: Right, well, enough. that... The 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 reason I use it in the uh, description of the book is because after the the Beatles gig, Jimmy started his own bands. Uh, one was called Jimmy Nickel and the Shubdubs, and the next one after that was called the Sound of Jimmy Nickel. And his records never charted, and the uh, the gigs that they had started out really big. Uh, large audiences, but over time they shrunk to the point where they were playing in very small bars. And Jimmy came to blame Brian Epstein and felt that Brian had blacklisted him so that he could not be a success. And uh, This is based upon uh, interviews with uh, his second wife, who I located in Mexico City, in one of the <laughs> places he vanished to right and and she spoke of the uh gold watch Jimmy Nichol was given an engraved gold watch by Brian Epstein and the Beatles when he uh left the band, and it was like a thank you watch um and but it also was sort of like um uh a bit of humor because it's the type of thing that you used to give a watch to someone after they worked for your company for fifty right. years retirement Retiring. So in that way it was somewhat humorous, but uh, it was also, you know, a serious thank you gift. Well, uh, when Jimmy got to Mexico and things, you know, he had some successes but some failures and he never reached that, he had never reached that pinnacle of fame again. One day he took this watch and he threw it really hard into a drawer blaming Brian Epstein for blacklisting him. And it smashed into pieces. Oh, so that all that was left was just the back, the engraved back piece. And uh, his wife told me about how she tried to put it back together and really couldn't. Well, she said he really came to blame Epstein for these failures, and he felt that, that Brian had blacklisted him. And so I I don't want to, like, give away the book, but, you know, there's more information in the book that deals with this aspect of the story. Okay, he, I was going to ask you more questions, but I'll just leave it there. Get the book, uh, "The Beetle <laughs> Who
0: Vanished" by Jim Birkenstadt. And um, where can we get this? Is this uh,
1: Amazon? Uh... It's available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and if people would like autographed copies, they can go to our author site, which is thebeetlewhovanished.com.
0: Very good. And uh, where can we find more of your stuff? Um, do you have your own website?
1: Uh, well, I have, if people want to know more about my career as a rock and roll detective, I have a site called rockandrolldetective.com. And they can also reach me and find out more about me at thebeetlewhovanished.com. And then I'm, uh, on Facebook, and there's also a Facebook page which is called Rock and Roll Detective. That's very cool.
0: Jim, it's it's really been a pleasure. I really appreciate you coming on today and and, and talking about your book and about Jimmy Nichol and the Beatles. Um, I often like to ask authors, and and you you've been you know you've written a few books here. You know, never Mind Nirvana, the Beatles Digest, Black Market Beatles, uh, John Paul and Me before the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to, there A lot of authors listen to my interviews, and yes. they always like to know this. Kind of the story behind the book, and that is what was the toughest part: the writing, uh, you know the, the, the promoting, the editing, the uh, the sure. publishing, especially nowadays with publishing. every author out there, even people who have had number one bestsellers yeah. are looking at a whole new because of the internet, a whole new way of publishing, and they 're confused. So um, sure. I just wanted to ask you a few questions. Um,
1: first of all, do you write all your own stuff? Do you write with a ghostwriter? I well, this book's completely 100% researched and written by me, The Beetle Who Vanished. Right. And uh, I self-published the book, and I'm happy to say that it was uh Amazon. It's been uh, on the Amazon bestseller list in music biographies, and also in their hot sellers list. Uh, right. And, and that was all through social media marketing. And I highly recommend that authors. Um, Take a look at that while they're in the process of the book writing. You know, promotion's a whole other job, and you have to get up to speed on, you know, I mean, being on On Purpose Magazine is an amazing honor. And, Thank you. And, and for authors, they should know that, you know, the SEO rankings of being mentioned on your site are incredibly uh, immense and important because it's a, it's a well-known uh, blog magazine. And they should understand the importance of uh, doing something on Facebook every day and, and creating a, a mailing list and, and sending out a mailing to people maybe once a month. You don't want to bug them to death. But if you're right. going to be at a certain place signing books or something, it's good to let them know where you're going to be. Um, and and you have to set up a website if you're going to self-publish, so you can direct people either to selling them directly or set up a page with um, Amazon. I have to say, Amazon has a really good uh, site called CreateSpace that can help authors self-publish. My past book, like the l- most recent one before this, was Nevermind Nirvana. That right. was with uh, Simon & Schuster, one of their sublabels. Nowadays, I, I think it's uh, more exciting to self-publish because you can do so many more creative things and, and market to people uh, in so many different ways. You know, When you have a book with a traditional publisher, they throw one book in every bookstore, they, they maybe give you a few radio shows to work with, and then it's forgotten, they're on to the next thing. Well, they're really not. Most of those, the, the, I say all of them. None of them
0: really do that much p- promo. No, um, really. And promo is like probably after you write the book. This is my, what what I found from talking to authors, is actually the hardest part of the book. Ten percent of the journey mm-hmm. is is writing it and publishing it. Mm-hmm. The rest is promoting it. Right. And yeah, um, I agree. Uh, and I would like to. I'd like to say because I think I think you're totally on the money. If you self-publish it and you do all the work yourself on the promo. Mm-hmm. And you know, with some help, I know that you work with some PR companies. That right. um, that's a great way to go. But some authors are not willing to take on that challenge. Uh, that's a lot, mm. and it is a challenge, is it not?
1: It is. It's a. It's quite a challenge. You have to do. You have to. You have to almost look at it as I'm starting a new business, and the business is I have one product, and it's my new book. Right. And you need a business plan because there are a lot of Thank you. Um, hidden expenses, and there are a lot of. Uh, things you need to get, a lot of ducks you need to get in order well before you release that book at Amazon or wherever you decide to release it. You really... And I'm
0: glad you said that because, you know, I've talked to, I love to talk to bestsellers especially. And one of the things that they've told me, most of the ones that have made either Amazon or New York bestsellers list, is that they started uh, promo well before the book was finished.
1: Right. You know, in fact, one example, uh, and I, I have to give credit to my daughter for this, who's a, um, uh, a social media guru. Uh, when I was in London, sort of walking in Jimmy Nichols' footsteps and going to all the places where he had lived and worked uh, for purposes of this book, right? Uh, she said to me, you ought you to blog about that in your rock and roll detective blog. <laughs> and I said, why? And she said, just do it. <laughs> she goes, you've got to create an early buzz for this thing. And I said, okay. So I did it. Next thing you know, I'm on the phone with Paramount, and they're interested in talking about an option on the book for a film deal. Right. Why, why is that? Because they read the blog of me running around looking for Jimmy Nickel, the Beatle who vanished. So anything can happen. The more you can, uh, more interesting content you can put up on the Internet and communicate to people. Well, you really that's the thing. People really her. want to be involved. Um,
0: I tell people all the time. You know, you write. If you wrote the coolest title book, and you put the the neatest graphic on it, that's going to sell some copies, possibly. Right. Um, but what really sells is your POV. And when I say point of view, and that is, yeah. people want to know the author, the story behind the book. They want to get involved and interested in that, and that's what makes them want to pick it up and read it. Is right.
1: That, are, are you? Absolutely. Am I? You're kind of totally, right on. You're right on. I mean. You know, I, of course, put a lot of thought into the title of the book because you want something to attract people, and, and Mm -hmm. of course, the cover of the book is a picture of Ringo Starr's actual drum case that he would take on tour, but it's sort of pasted over with Jimmy Nickel, a photo of Jimmy Nickel with the Beatles as he's trying out with the Beatles to create the idea that they've slapped this on because they've got to go on tour in a hurry and. He's got to use all of Ringo's equipment and clothing and everything. So, you know, you put a lot of thought into these things, but sure, you're right. You know, a couple people see that and go, oh, cool, I better check this out. But that really you have to sort of talk about, well, what is the the real story here and why is it interesting to me? And is it interesting to me even if I'm not a a fan of the Beatles? And, of course, the answer is yes. (laughs) But... Uh, you know, there's so much to, so much planning even on the back cover. What are you going to put on the back cover when people flip it over and look at it? Because a lot of people decide whether to buy a book that way or the inside flap of a hardcover. Um, well, you know, there, there are, there's are the books, books com- on that, too, that people yeah. can read. Hey, well, you know, as a music lover yourself, you probably
0: spent some time um, buying vinyl where you would just flip through oh, the yeah. records and look for the coolest cover. Yes. And you pick it up and you'd go, wow, this is great, and you would turn it on and you go, what a bunch of crap.
1: <laughs> I know, I know. Well, but uh, but that, but
0: that too. so that you know, I think only, that sells a percentage, but what really sells is word of mouth. You know, when everybody yep. says when somebody came to me and said, you got to check out this new group, Van Van Halen, and I'm like, who? I I, I could I don't need one more record. <laughs> and uh, until and they said, well, no, you got you got to hear it. So I listened yep. to it and went,
1: I need this album. Right. Well, same thing with my gave me a, a black keys album for christmas I'm right like, oh yeah some new band you know <laughs> and i put that on and i loved every song and i and i was like i felt like a kid again like wow i've discovered a great new rock band and, <laughs> and i hadn't discovered it he had but just it, you know there's there's always something new being created in the art world and uh it's it's fun to discover new things and but it takes a lot of work when you're doing it yourself, so the best thing you can do is plan and organize, create a business plan, uh, put aside money, or or look at one of those uh, websites where you can raise money if you don't have the money. Uh, right. But, hey, Jimmy. do you, Oh, Jimmy. I I just used Jimmy. I don't know. What,
0: <laughs> I don't know you that well. Jim, <laughs> yep. do you ever do speaking?
1: I do, yes, absolutely. Uh, are you available for that if anybody wants you to speak for them? I'm absolutely available for that, and, and in fact, soon I'm going to be uh, putting up a video letting people know that I'm working Okay. Oh, but Oh, great. But absolutely, uh, people can reach me at the website, uh, those two websites, thebeetlewhovanished.com or rockandroldetective.com, and I do do speaking engagements.
0: Wonderful. Excellent. Listen, I uh, really appreciate you coming on today and um, sharing with us, and uh, it's been it's really been great uh, speaking with you. Uh, you know, um, not only a pleasure and an honor, but also really enjoyable. Um, I'd like to let uh, my interviewees uh, end with the last word. Is there a message you'd like to put out, or just maybe just a little uh, sound bite on why they sh- why people should pick
1: up the book? Uh, anything. Well, first of all, I'd like to just thank you uh, for having me on on Purpose Magazine. It's a it's a great honor for me thank to you. be on your blog, uh, which which I very much enjoy, just perusing and listening to the interviews. So, thank you for having me on. Uh, really appreciate I it. Guess, I guess the last word about about why I think this uh, is an interesting story, uh, the the beetle who vanished, is that I think it works on two levels. First. Uh, piecing together the career of someone who is really forgotten in history uh, but who was very talented is sort of uh, one part detective work one part jigsaw puzzle and, and people who are interested in mysteries will all, all also find this uh, pretty interesting uh, and i think more importantly a portrait emerged about a very talented guy who experiences a huge ride to the top of the entertainment world at a very young age and for a very brief time. And I wanted to explore what those 15 minutes of fame were like in an intense detail and then describe how it affects the rest of his life. And so hopefully I've been successful in conveying Jimmy Nichols' story, which is clearly a cautionary tale. And in fact, uh, Butch Vig who's a Grammy drummer who's worked with Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, Paul McCartney. Uh, he wrote, This is a fascinating and mysterious must-read for hardcore Beatle fans and anyone who wants to understand the meteoric rise to pop stardom and the subsequent crash landing. Excellent. You've been listening to J.W.
0: Nigerian from On Purpose Magazine. I'm speaking to Jim Birkenstadt. And he's the author of The Beetle Who Vanish, the story of Jimmy Nickel. Again, Jim, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And I want to wish everybody a great day and an even better tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our Meta Media Group production of On Purpose Magazine. You can find On Purpose Magazine at onpurposemagazine.com. On Purpose Magazine and JW On Purpose... Is the property and is a trademark of Meta Media Group and this audio is copyright 2012 and all rights are reserved.